Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 of uh, this great book and this great chapter. I want to just say again, I couldn't couldn't be more uh, proud, really, if, if I can say that in a godly way of of, uh, of Johnny from last week and just really impressed at his growth and, and the faithfulness uh, that he demonstrates in handling God's word. And that can be said of all of our pastors. So uh, please, please understand just how incredibly blessed we are. Uh, it's, it's almost embarrassing how, how blessed we are. Um, but First John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Lord, please help us. We pray again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I think it's about time that we just come clean and confess something that we have left unsaid throughout this entire study of 1 John. And that is that genuine Christian people, believing men and women, do struggle at times, sometimes habitually, with the assurance of salvation. should breathe a collective sigh of relief because you don't have to hide it anymore. Genuine Christians struggle to know that you, that we, have eternal life. If that weren't the case, then 1 John wouldn't be in the Bible, now would it? This book written to Christians to help us procure assurance of salvation. Now, for some of us, the doubt about whether or not we're actually Christians is um, fleeting and doesn't really last very long and doesn't pop up very often. For others of us, it's almost our uh, sort of status quo (laughs) modus operandi. But the fact remains that at certain points in our Christian life, we wonder if we're not a little bit like those two women down in Florida who showed up for the vaccines dressed as grannies. We're all dressed up. We know what to say, we know what to call ourselves, but we wonder if just deep down, if you strip away all of the the veneer, we're not just huge frauds. On the other hand, there are those moments when, as John puts it here, we have confidence before God, and we feel, don't we, in those moments, this, this astounding sense of boldness as if we could run right into the throne room of God interrupt our father's business of upholding the world by his word and and ask him anything we'd like and he'd hear us like a father who would stop a board meeting to to listen to his son or daughter 
It's the fluctuation between these two experiences that makes John write what he does in the paragraph that we've just read. In many ways, this is the most penetrating, soul-searching, and indeed practical part of this book called 1 John. He deals with the, the, the onslaught of condemnation and the joy of confidence, and he tells us what to do when we experience either of these, both of these. What do I do when I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian? And what do I do when I experience the joy of my salvation? Condemnation and confidence. Now, before we get into this passage in depth, and I want to just highlight that it's almost like broken in half. There's the experience of condemnation and the experience of confidence and what to do in light of both. But I want to introduce you in this passage to really what amounts to the, the central actor of this text, the primary person that we're dealing with in this text. I want to introduce you to someone known by our heart. If you read this passage carefully, you'll notice that, especially at the beginning, the passage is front-loaded with references to our heart. Verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us. Verse 20, God is greater than our heart. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us. The primary person in this passage is you, <laughs> our heart. Now, I'm going to say something that I hope doesn't offend you, but we have to just kind of get, get to the root of this before we even look at the passage. And that is to say, this is one of the areas where biblical Christianity and modern traditional lingo as it relates to Christianity are at odds. They don't line up. Because in the New Testament, this language of heart, cardia, is where we get our English word cardiac, you can understand heart. This word cardia signifies, um, much in line with Hebrew tradition, the inner person as a whole. It refers to your mind, your intellect. It refers to your feelings and your emotions. It refers to your will and your desires. It refers to you as you really are inside. This is not uh, sort of the distinction that we make in the way that we often talk about Christianity between head and heart. I understand at its best and at its purest what's being communicated there is that there's a difference between knowing the truth and believing and acting upon the truth, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, no pun intended. But what is described here is not a distinction between head and heart, it's you, it's who you are inside, it's your soul. That's who we're dealing with. And what John is going to do here is explain to us what to do when our heart condemns us and what to do when our heart does not condemn us. And I'm going to begin, and I'm going to warn you, spend the majority of the time on what to do when our heart condemns us. So if you'd like, that's our first heading. You might want to take notes and write, when our hearts condemn us, when my heart condemns us. This is verses 19 and 20. Look again. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Sometimes the best way to understand 
a long sentence that has the word for, F-O-R, in it, is to flip it around and change the for into a therefore. So let's do that. That's going to help us. Another way of reading this text would be, beginning in verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Therefore, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Therefore, this is how we're going to know we're of the truth and reassure our heart whenever our heart condemns us. Whenever our heart condemns us. Whenever you condemn yourself. When you accuse yourself. When you doubt yourself. When you do not know that you have eternal life. That's what we're talking about. Now, I said in the first service, and I'll say it again, um, this doubt, this heart condemnation that John pictures the Christian experiencing is normal. And as a matter of fact, pastorally in counseling, I am always way more concerned with the person who never struggles with this than I am with the person who habitually struggles with this. This is normal, genuine Christian experience. Heart condemns us. But why? I want to explore with you a couple of reasons why I think it is that our hearts may condemn us as we stand here in 2021. And the first is a very genuine sort of reason, and that is because of our own sin. Um, John will say in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. He pictures the devil as one who brings accusations against us before the living God, and Jesus is the one who pleads his blood and righteousness on our behalf. And I think it's easy to dismiss any sort of doubt or any sort of question about sin in our lives, any kind of conviction about sin or um, lack of assurance and light of sin to the devil. That's the work of the devil. But unfortunately for us, John here tells us that the devil very often finds an all-too-willing partner um, in your own heart. Your heart condemns you. See, here the, the accuser isn't Satan, it's you. And sometimes that is genuine and, and called for. If you are aware of some sort of grievous sin, either isolated or habitual, and it troubles your conscience, that's a good and healthy thing as a Christian. Sometimes our hearts condemn us by merely just bringing back to bear upon our souls the reality of our sin and our need for forgiveness. And the right thing to do in those instances is not to sort of try to duck the conviction of sin or to escape the voice of conscience, but rather to listen to the voice of conscience as long as it's being informed by the scriptures and flee to Jesus, who's the only solution to our guilt. But I think if we're honest, deep down, you can search your own heart and know whether or not I'm right. I think very often the reason that we feel condemned by our hearts, the reason we lack assurance of salvation more often than not is that for so many of us, our faith is so bound up with the way that we feel 
our emotions, that when our emotions fluctuate, so too does our assurance. And I want to tell you, I understand fluctuating emotions, despite what you may think or may have heard. I'm an enormous softy. And I'll tell you what, it only takes me watching Rocky One to laugh, rage, and cry all within the span of a couple of hours. And I'm sure you're the same. I'm getting to the age now as I'm pushing 40, I can sometimes tear up at the sight of a commercial, but like De Niro and analyze me or analyze this if you've ever seen that movie. But I'm an emotional guy and I'm sure you're emotional as well. The point is, is that our emotions fluctuate. They're not stable. And so when our emotions fluctuate, if our faith is based on our emotions, so too will our assurance. You've probably heard it. In fact, you've probably thought it or said it. I just don't feel safe. The question, of course, is what, what does being safe feel like? But the larger point is that in our day and age, in many respects, emotions have sort of choked out truth as the way that we understand the world. We understand the world by the way we feel, not what we know. My family's just getting really irritated by my Mr. Miyagi quotes as of late. We're, uh, we're, we watched uh, Karate Kid 1 and 2, and now we're, in the, we're halfway through 3, which incidentally is making me feel very Newcastle proud, if you know what I mean. Um, but apparently you don't know what I mean. You guys know what I mean, right? You know, there's a guy from Newcastle who's the main, he's Mike Barnes in Karate Kid 3. You didn't know that? I mean, he's like the LeBron James. Well, I guess not. I guess uh, the, the football players. But anyways, he's popular. He's from this town. He's the bad guy in Karate Kid 3. Watch it. It'll make you proud. Or it'll make you ashamed because he's the bad guy. Either way, I digress. We're watching Karate Kid. And the point is, um, in Karate Kid 2, there's this quote. I actually paused it. I said, Kelly, what did he just say? We had to rewind it. And I wrote it down. It's Mr. Miyagi. He's talking to Daniel LaRusso. And he says, um, never let passion come before principle. Even if you win, you lose. Never let emotion come before principle. Even when you win, you lose. And that was as true in the 80s, or today, as it was in the 80s. We've let emotion sort of dictate what we believe to be true, the way that we see the world. I notice it all the time with uh, people younger than me. I'm starting to get the old man yells at clouds kind of vibe, but uh, I, you know, I, you hear young people sometimes, they, they, instead of saying, I think that, they've replaced that phrase with, I feel like. You ever notice that? I think that we should order pizza for dinner. I feel like we should order pizza for dinner. Sometimes when I'm feeling really cranky, I stop someone when they say that and I say, what does that feel like? What does it feel like when you feel like you should get pizza for dinner? No, what you meant to say is, I think that. See? And what Alistair would always say is, don't tell me what you feel, tell me what you know. And funny, that's where John takes us. In the moments when our hearts condemn us, whether it's because of a legitimate sin, where we feel the, the weight and the guilt of our sin, or it's because of some emotional, uh, lack of emotional excess in our relationship with the Lord, what do we do when our heart condemns us? Well, John tells us first and foremost to understand that your heart is not God. There's no authority. 
in the accusations of your heart. Look at what John says. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He's omniscient. I am not. So what do I do? God is greater than my heart. He knows everything. My heart condemns me. I lack assurance. I've got a problem. I want to be reassured. It's misery to be a Christian and yet doubt whether you really are. Therefore, we're back at 19. By this we shall know, not by the voice of our hearts. John is telling us, do not follow your heart. It's not by your heart that you will know. It is by this that you will know that you are of the truth. And reassure your doubting, lacking, uh, 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 heart that lacks assurance. It is by this that you will know that you are of the truth and set your heart at peace before him. And what is the this? It goes back to what Johnny taught last week. You know, I was struck, and Johnny and I spoke about this afterwards, that it, the, the contrast in 1 John 3 is, is I, I mean, I, I don't take this the wrong way, it's bizarre on the face of it. I mean, John goes at pains to say, don't be like Cain, be like Jesus. Now, if, if you're a, a person who's reading the Bible for your, your uh, the Bible reading plan for uh, 2021, you've read Genesis recently, haven't you? Who would we naturally think Cain to be contrasted with? Abel. That's the contrast in Genesis, Cain versus Abel. Two sacrifices. Which one's acceptable? But see, John does something surprising, and when something surprising is said in the Scriptures, that should raise our awareness of it. Here's the surprising contrast. It's not Cain and Abel, it's Cain and Jesus. Why? There's the, the secret to the, the, the text and what it means. See, murder didn't originate on, on Thursday in New Wilmington. Murder originated with Cain. He's the prototype of murder. He's the archetype of what it means to be a murderer. So in love with himself that he takes. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the archetype, the only one who truly loved others. And so rather than taking life from them out of love for himself, he gives his own life out of love for others. There's the contrast. And so when John says, by this we know that we are of the truth, he's referring back to the kind of love demonstrated in Jesus and then poured out into the hearts of believing people. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What John is saying is look outside of the voice of your heart and look to the evidence of God's goodness in your life as you have loved other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an inter-church uh, inter kind of love. Have I loved the brothers and sisters in Christ? Have I given of myself for them? Have I sacrificed my time for them? Have I sacrificed my preferences for them? Have I shared the world go world's goods with them? Have I given them financial help or food when they needed food? Have I given them a place to stay when they needed a place to stay? It's that evidence, that objective, true-to-life evidence of love for brothers and sisters that sets our doubting heart at ease. Not because it shows that we're good enough, but it shows that we have believed in Jesus in such a way that, to use the parlance that I just rejected earlier, it shows that we have a heart knowledge of the gospel. And this is why we need one another, friends. Not only that there would be someone to love, but that we would be able to point one another to the evidence of God's grace 
in our lives. Because here's the thing. In the moment of extreme doubt and anxiety, when my heart condemns me, the only thing that I'm going to see is where I fail. The only thing I'm going to be aware of is my lack of emotion or my negative emotions as it relates to my faith in Jesus. And more often than not, I will need you to say, Mike, snap out of it. Do you see what God's doing in your life? Do you see what you've done here? Do you see the evidence of God's goodness and grace in your, in your life in these areas? I need you to tell me those things, and you will need me to tell you those things as well. But this is not a subjective sort of evidence. This is objective. There's obedience that flows from faith. In the moment that my heart condemns me, I need to know what I know and not what I feel. When my heart condemns me, I've got to understand God is greater than my heart, and he has given in my life actual evidence of saving faith, objective evidence of saving faith, and that then reassures my heart. Ten minutes now on what to do, not when I experience uh, condemnation, but when I experience confidence. Because here's the joy. Not each and every one of us is dealing with doubt right now, or not even usually. Very often we have this experience that John describes as confidence, and we need to know what to do then. I would argue that if you want just one word uh, for what to do when I feel like I'm not a Christian or I doubt my salvation, the word is preach. Preach to yourself, man. Preach to yourself, woman. Remind yourself of God's goodness in your life and all the things that he has born in your life as you've walked in obedience to him. And here, the word is it's, it's pray. It's pray. You would think that that would be the word for when I doubt, but it's the word for when I'm assured. Look at what John says, verse 21. Beloved, if our, hearts do, uh, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let me just give you the logic. There is confidence in approaching the Lord in prayer when I know that I meet the conditions for approaching the Lord in prayer. And there are conditions. Prayer is conditional. That is not works-based salvation. Let me just explain Prayer is conditional. The Bible never promises that God will answer the prayers, for instance, of those who don't trust in his son. There's no indication that God hears the prayers of those who don't trust in his son, biblically. The people that God promises to hear are those who are his children, who approach him as a father. Again, running into the boardroom in the middle of a meeting, stopping to have his father's ear. It's those who are his children who have his ear. And those who are his children, we know from John's theology, are those who have believed in his son. Why is it that we would have confidence if our hearts do not condemn us? Our hearts do not condemn us, very 
often because there's nothing genuine to be condemned over. We're walking in obedience. And in context here, it's faith and love. And therefore, we do approach the throne of grace with boldness and pray uh, for whatever we desire of him. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we receive from him, uh, we, or whatever we ask, we receive from him. When I am living a life filled with that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, it's time to pray. Pray. Because I know I will receive anything I ask of him. Now, let's not get crazy. Um, when I was a kid, there was a movie entitled Blank Check, where a little boy finds a blank check, starts just, you know, writing checks, cash in it, it buys whatever he wants, and you know instinctively it's going to go poorly, right? You can't give a child absolutely everything he or she wants. It's going to be a disaster. And you can't give the Christian everything he or she wants either. Because if I got everything I prayed for, we would all be in a lot of trouble. But look at what John says later on in chapter 5. He puts a governor on the car. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5, This is the confidence, so here's that same language, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to, the will, to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If we ask anything according to his will, there's the governor. You know what a governor is on a car? If you get in your car today to go home, you're going to see your speedometer might go up to 110. Your car's not going to go 110. No matter how hard you try, you've got a governor on it probably at 90 miles an hour that says you can go this far and no farther. And the governor on our prayer lives is the will of God. You can go this far, but no further. God is only committed to answering his believing children according to those things that he wills. And the condition for prayer in this way is the confidence that I've trusted in Jesus and I'm walking in faith and obedience and that therefore the things that I'm asking are generally going to be in line with what he desires for me as his child and he promises to hear me. The confidence by which I approach the throne of grace is a confidence that I obey God's commandments as described here in 1 John 3. This is remarkable. It's remarkable for a couple of reasons. Remarkable, number one, because if you'll notice, John uses command singular. This is his commandment, full stop. But then he tells us two things. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Then he goes back in verse 24 to refer to the commandments plural, but initially he refers to one commandment, and it's not even what we would traditionally think of as a commandment, because the commandment is the gospel. What's the condition for my confident prayer? It's my belief in the gospel. This is his commandment that you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Fundamentally and principally, the number one primary area of obedience that God requires of every man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived is obedience to the commandment to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This is obedience. 
Believe. Believe in who God says his son Jesus is, the Christ, the Savior, the God-man. And by believing in him, we know, love for those who also believe in him will naturally flow from your heart. And so obeying the first part of the command, you obey the second. See, I can remember when I was not yet a Christian, there was a comedian, it was a very crude comedian. I trust you not to even look up the bit because it will be offensive. It was offensive to me as I thought back on it. But this comedian who had this big shtick where he would take the Ten Commandments down to two. And the whole point of it was to kind of mock biblical morality, to mock the scriptures, to mock our God. What a foolish God who has to have Ten Commandments when really you can boil down human decency to two. But you know, the, the real joke there is that God had beaten this man to the punch 2,000 years prior. Because here we have all of biblical morality and biblical ethics boiled down to this, believe in Jesus and love the brothers. If you like, this is John's version of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the scriptures teach by way of living out practical Christianity. Trust and obey. Believe in Jesus. Love one another. You obey the second half by obeying the first. It's a commandment. And let me just say, if you are here this morning or you're watching the live stream and you're not yet a Christian, let me tell you, First Baptist Church will require nothing of you, will put no burden upon you other than to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know ourselves that we can't complete, uh, obey the laws of God perfectly, and therefore we're not going to require you to, that's for certain. No, we would tell you that the number one primary issue of obedience for you is to believe in Jesus Christ, to know that you are a sinner and that he is the only Savior, and to trust in him for eternal life. My fear, brothers and sisters, is that sometimes we bury the lead. And I fear right now we're especially burying the lead. Because my fear is that as culture looks at us, they don't see that those people are passionate and adamant and committed to the one thing necessary in my life is that I believe in the name of the Son of God, and that is Jesus Christ, and that they're worried about a whole host of other ethical, important but ethical commands that neither they keep or can I keep apart from faith in Jesus. Loved ones, let's not bury the lead. The primary issue is faith in Jesus Christ. And as it relates to assurance, it is when I believe in Jesus Christ, when I'm trusting in him, and I can see objectively evidence of my trust in him played out in love for other brothers and sisters that I barge into the throne room and know that I have confidence to approach him and that anything I ask according to his will, he hears me. Blessed assurance. John finishes this paragraph by talking about this mutual abiding that takes place between the Christian and his or her God. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, remains in God and God in him. And by this we know that God abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Spirit empowers our obedience. And it's our obedience that then gives us assurance that we abide in God. It's the gift of the Spirit that shows that God abides in us. There's a mutual abiding. 
But what it all has got to do with is faith in Jesus Christ and love for the brothers. So what do I do? What do I do when I lack assurance? I've got to preach to myself the truth of my love for the brothers and sisters. What do I do when I am assured by my love of the brothers and sisters of my interest in Christ? It's time to pray. Time to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, to watch him answer according to his, prayer, to his will because he delights to hear his children. So practical. Some of us this morning need to preach. Others of us will need to pray. But no matter where you are on the spectrum of assurance, you've got something to do. And it all has got to do with Jesus and the love that he inspires for his people within our hearts. So let's pray together. Lord, we so thank you for your word. And God, it feels good to just confess what we all know. We struggle with assurance. Some of us almost routinely Lord, I pray that you will enable us in those moments of a lack of assurance to see evidence of your work in our hearts and in our lives as it's expressed in love for the brothers and sisters. I pray that um, you would cause each and every one of us to have a true, a, a biblical friend who can help us to see the evidence of God's grace in our lives. I pray for anyone here who feels like they don't have a biblical friend, that they would be able to, to contact us and say, I, I don't know anybody who can do that for me. Can you get me connected? And Lord, we pray for those of us who just have a, a keen awareness of your grace to us and we're certain that we belong to you. Lord, we pray that now would be the time for us to pray. I'm going to pray in all seasons, but certainly when we know that we have confidence to approach you and receive anything that we ask according to your will. So pray that, um, that you would compel us to do so. Pray for those of us who lack assurance and need it, that you would give it. We pray for those of us who have assurance and are um, right in our assessment of our own souls, that you would encourage us, and we pray as well for those who just never even have thought in these categories because, frankly, they don't take salvation seriously enough to doubt. Pray that you would draw them to yourself in a saving faith. We pray your blessing would be upon each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me say, as always, if your soul, your conscience is troubled by First John, that's common. Uh, please do reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. And until I hear from you, may the grace of our God and Father uh, and the love of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. Go in his grace. Enjoy his blessings.